Good morning. My name is Lorraine Dowling. And as I speak, you'll recognise my accent as being totally Aussie. <laughs> I live in New Zealand, but as soon as I land back on Tullamarine, I slip back into my Aussie language. So I might say that I am bilingual. <laughs> I, I have an Aussie accent and a Kiwi accent. I have an Aussie dialect and a Kiwi dialect. And you'll pick up bits and pieces from what I say. You'll think, oh, now that's not Aussie. That's New Zealand. But you'll forgive me for that, please, because sometimes my mind doesn't catch up and I revert back to what I'm used to. So please... Ex um, uh, accept the the difference in language that I, I, I give. This morning, I want to draw your attention to the book of Samuel. Um, and as you'll see by the heading, the God of the box. I'm referring you to chapters 4, 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to read the narrative... Uh, it's lengthy, but it's important. So um, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but you can follow along in whatever translation you're happy with. And I'm reading from chapter 4 at the moment, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops ret retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Then they said, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. So they sent to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. What's going on? The Philistines asked. What's all the shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the Ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We have never had to face anything like this before. Help! Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. Fight as never before, Philistines. If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slaves, just as they have been ours. Stand up like men and fight. 
So the Philistines fought desperately and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The Ark of God was captured and Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were killed. A man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that same day. He had torn his clothes and put on dust on his head to show his grief. Eli, the priest, was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the ark. When the messenger arrived and told what had happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. What's all the noise, Eli, Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. So what happened? Eli asked. Israel has been defeated by the Philistines. The people have been slaughtered. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed. And the ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what had happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth. She died in childbirth. But she had named the child Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? For she said, Israel's glory is gone. And she named him this because the ark of God had been captured and because a father and law and husband were dead. The ark was a wooden box overlaid with gold. It was about four foot long, two feet high, wide, and two feet high. So it was a box. Its cover was made of pure gold with two cherubims hammered out of gold on the top of it. It contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And you can read about that in the book of Hebrews. But it was more than just a box. It was the visible symbol of God's presence among the Israelites. So when the Israelites lost the ark in battle, it was as if they had lost God himself. Now let's move to chapter 5, and I'm going to read again. After the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer, 
to the town of Ashdod. They carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, guess what? Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and his hands had broken off and they were laying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. That's why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod will step on the threshold. Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Ashdod and the nearby villages with a plague. When the people realised what was happening, they cried out, we can't keep the ark of God of Israel here any longer. He is against us. We will all be destroyed along with Dagon, our God. So they called together the rulers of the Philistine towns and asked, what shall we do with the ark of God? The rulers discussed it and they said, let's move it to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel to Gath. But when the ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell on the men of Gath, young and old, and he struck them with a plague. And there was great panic. So they sent the ark of God to the town of Ekron. But when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, they are bringing the ark of God of Israel here to kill us too. The people summoned the Philistine rulers again and begged them, please send the ark of God of Israel back to its own country or it will kill us. For the deadly plague from God had already begun and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumours and the cry from the town rose to heaven. I want to talk to you about God. And the thing, the, the, the greatest thing that I found when I read these scriptures was that God can take care of himself. Does that strike you in all that? God can take care of himself. We know that he is God and he can take care of himself, but we don't always act as if we believe it. So the first point I want to make out of this passage of scripture is that God is Lord of all the earth. Can we have the next? That's it. Thank you. If you read Acts 17, 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. As the Lord God rules everything in the universe, it includes all that takes place on this planet. So God 
is not surprised by circumstances. We may be surprised by circumstances, but God is not. The Israelites were shocked by the capture of the ark, but poor Eli, Eli fell backwards off his chair and broke his neck when he heard the news. And when his daughter-in-law heard the news, she went into premature labour and died in childbirth. The whole nation was in sudden grief and mourning at the capture of the ark. But none of this surprised God. When the Philistines captured the ark, they didn't catch God off guard. God not only knew the Philistines would capture the ark in battle, he allowed it. This was all part of God's plan. He had not lost control of the situation. He was going to demonstrate to the Philistines and to the Israelites his power. It looked like God's people had lost and God's enemies had won, but that was not the case at all. This, it's important for us to remember this in, in times when we face setbacks in life. When things come upon us and we think, oh, this is the end, or I'll never get over this, I'll never be able to cope with this. God is still in control. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark your experience is, God is still in control. He is Lord of the earth and he is not surprised by your circumstances. Neither... Is he limited by geography? After the Philistines captured the ark, they proudly brought it back to their home territory. At first, they brought it uh, from the Israelites' camp in Ebenezer to the city of Ashdod. Now, Ashdod was a coastal city about three miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It was also one of the major cities for the Philistines and they probably felt confident now that they had Israel's God on their turf. But God is Lord of the earth and therefore he's not limited by geography. You can never get home ground advantage on God. Because the whole earth belongs to him. It took the Philistines a while to figure this out. And when it didn't work out having the ark in Ashdod, they moved it to Gath. Now, Gath was another major city. That's where um, Goliath came from, if you know that story. It was further inland from the coast. And... It was closer to Israel's border. And perhaps they thought if they moved the ark closer to its home, the judgment would stop. But that didn't work. So they moved the ark from there to Ekron, another major city, even closer to Israel's border. No matter where they moved the ark, God was still beating them on their own turf. And why was that? Because he's not limited by geography. 
And this is an important thing for us to grasp. Most of the false gods and idols throughout history were tribal gods or national gods who were tied to certain locations, but not the one true God. The one true God is not limited to a certain time or place. He is not limited to a building or a specific denomination or a specific country. He is everywhere, all present, all time, 24-7. And we forget that sometimes. We get into circumstances that we can't control and we forget that God is already there in that circumstance. He's there 24-7. I can be here now and in Jakarta next in a couple of weeks and he's going with me. He'll be there. He's not limited by geography at all. And neither should we be when we're talking about Jesus. Sure, it's safe to talk about Jesus in church. But out there in the marketplace, he's not limited to this building. He's out there too. He's out there in the marketplace. He's with you when you have an opportunity to talk about him. He's with you. He's there. And neither is God threatened by competition. When the Philistines first brought the Ark of Ashdod and put it in the temple of their god Dagon, they thought they had conquered Israel's god. To capture an enemy's god was to capture him. So putting the Ark in Dagon's temple was a sign of conquest for them. To the Philistines, it meant that their god was superior to Yahweh. The statue of their god Dagon towered on his pedestal over the tiny ark. Now Israel's god would be forced to serve Dagon, the god of Philistines. So who was Dagon? Dagon was a well-known god in Old Testament times. Some considered him to be the father of Baal. He was worshipped in the Middle East long before the Philistines arrived there and he was still worshipped in Ashdod as late as 50 BC. He was not the Philistines' original god, but they adopted him as their main god after they moved into the Middle East. For example, in the book of Judges, when the Philistines captured Samson, we read that the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. So he was a major God in the Philistines and in the Middle East. So the Philistines put the ark in the temple with their God, Dagon. But you know what? God is not threatened by competition. The idols of the world are nothing to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.4, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. God wasn't scared when the ark was put in the temple. God is Lord of all the earth. 
and is not threatened by competition, is not threatened by, surprised by circumstances, is not limited by geography. The second point, God is not served by human hands. That simply means God does not need human beings to help him. Acts 17.25 says, He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need us to watch over him. When we say God is not served by human hands, we mean, first of all, that God does not need us at all to watch over him. When the ark was captured, I'm sure the Israelites wondered, oh, uh, who would, who's going to look after it? Who's going to take care of it? Who's going to light the candles? Who's going to prepare everything for the ark? God wasn't worried about all that. God is the one who watches over us. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. He's not served by human hands and he doesn't need us to watch over him. Nor does he need us to protect him. The Philistines put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon, deep in Philistine territory. Oh, scary, scary. Philistine temple, uh, the ark by, by itself in, in the Philistine camp. What's going to happen to the ark now? The very first morning when the Philistines got up, there was Dagon falling, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The expression on his face is an expression of worship. Bowing down in worship before the God of the Israelites. Then in verse 3 it says, They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Not only is their God face down in worship before the ark, they had to lift him up and put him back in his place. In other words, God can take care of himself, but Dagon can't. So the ark is all alone, deep inside enemy territory, and God is doing just fine. He doesn't need any backup. He doesn't need Israel to launch a search and rescue mission. He will bring back the ark to Israel when he's good and ready. He doesn't need us to protect him. He doesn't depend on anyone. He is completely different from the pagan gods who needed sacrifices of the people to give them life and energy. Our God is not 
served by human hands. He does not need us to protect him, nor does he need us to defend him. We can sometimes get so bent out of shape when people attack God. But really, you don't need to worry about that. Sure, it's important to speak up and stand up for your faith, say a good word for God anytime you can, but don't ever feel that God needs you to defend him. Anytime we think God can't get along without us, we are guilty of pride. He can get along quite well without us. He doesn't need defending. It's important to answer people's questions about God and we should know how to defend our faith. But when we feel we must somehow defend God from all these attacks, we are forgetting who God is. He's bigger than that. Bigger than that. There was a philosopher, and some of you learned students will know of him. His name was Voltaire. And he lived in the 1700s. Voltaire predicted that the church would soon die out and that in 50 years no one would ever remember Christianity anymore. As usual, God sat up there laughing. (laughs) 50 years later, Voltaire was dead and the church was still going strong. Not only that, Voltaire's former house had become headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society (laughs) and was used for printing Bibles. Go figure! (laughs) He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need us to watch over him. He doesn't need us to protect him and he does not need us to to offend him. This is our God. The last point I want to make is God will judge the world with justice. And this comes out in this scripture, in this passage. God allowed the Philistines to capture the ark. But when the Philistines acted as though they had captured the ark because Gagon was superior, God brought swift and painful judgment to them. Acts 17.31 says this, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. How will God judge the world? He will judge the false idols of the world. You remember the Philistines first put the ark in Dagon's temple at Ashdod. This was a big mistake. If they had only read the Ten Commandments that were actually inside the ark, they would have seen the very first one which said, you shall have no other gods before me. God will not share his glory with another. He will not. It is interesting that the ark... Here in this verse, in verse 3, and I found this extremely interesting, it is called the Ark of God. 
But then it changes and it's called the Ark of the Lord. And that's interesting because it, the actual translation in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And there's no exact equivalent English for Yahweh, so we use the Lord in capital letters. But it's still insufficient. And Israelites and Hebrews will not utter the word because they find it too sacred to mention. But it actually means God's self-deriving, ongoing and never-ending existence, Yahweh. So it's cha- they changed the, the text from uh, the Ark of God to the Ark of Yahweh. The God, self-deriving, ongoing and n- never-ending existent one. Does that not make you proud to belong to him? Does it not make you stand up with your head high and say, this is the God I serve. He is ever-existing, self-deriving, always-existent God. The Philistines have set up a confrontation. And we are to witness Yahweh versus Dagon. We already saw how that first morning they found Dagon stretched out on the floor before the ark. They picked him up, put him back in his place because he couldn't do it himself. But the following morning they rose and there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and uh, were lying on the threshold by his body. God was showing the Philistines that what had happened was no coincidence or accident. The cutting off of the hands and the head was a means of military execution in those days. So Dagon is first humbled before the Lord, then shown to be helpless before the Lord, and then finally executed in military style within the confines of his own temple. His head and hands broken off and lying on the threshold. And verse 5 says, And that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on that threshold. For the rest of their days, every single time the Philistines step into that temple, They would not go on that particular piece of ground. They were reminded that that is where Yahweh defeated Dagon. And just as Dagon, uh, just as God judged Dagon, he will judge all false idols of this world. That includes the many things we can sometimes put up before God in our own lives. So it it includes the things that we sometimes set up as gods in our own lives. God will judge them for what they are. False idols of the heart that we have worshipped instead of God. Mm. It's worth thinking about. 
God will judge those who stand against him as well. So first, God will judge the false idols. He will also judge those who stand up against him. You might remember the story, the narrative of, of Hannah in the first book of Samuel. And Hannah's song, at the end of her song, she said, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So here we see God judging the Philistines for their arrogance. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay with us because his hand is heavy upon us. The men of Ashdod rightly recognised it as God's judgment on them for capturing the ark. So they gathered the rulers and said, what do we do? The Philistine leaders proposed a test. They moved the ark from Gath uh, to Gath to see if that would stop the onslaught, but it made no difference. It made it worse. The city of Gath was thrown into panic and now both young and old were afflicted with the plague and God's judgment continued and continued to get worse. And they moved the ark again to Ekron. But people actually started dying from the plague. So now the people were desperate. What do we do? Send it away. Send it away. Get the ark out of here. Send it back to its own place before it kills us all. And the Philistines tried moving the ark three times. And each time, things got worse. Strike three, you're out. One Bible commentator says... This was no tame God. This was no tame God the Philistines had conquered. The ark had fallen into their hands, but they had fallen into the hands of Yahweh. The book of Hebrews says it is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And I believe that with all my heart. There are too many people that see the, the God of the New Testament as a loving, um, empathetic, touchy-feely God and the God of the Old Testament, God of judgment. But I see the God of the New Testament, a God of judgment. And I see the God of the Old Testament, a God of love. It's the same God. He loved his people in the Old Testament and he loves in the New. But he's a God of judgment. And he will not stand for any God set up before him. He will judge those who stand against him. And all will eventually acknowledge him as Lord. Those who did not die were afflicted with the plague. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. The pagans crying went up to heaven. Where else could it go? It was almost as if God was marching in triumph from one 
major Philistine city to the next. He had triumphed over his enemies and finally they acknowledged his superiority. Verse 12 tells us they went, they, they sent a cry up to heaven. And one day, all people will eventually acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That day is coming. Paul says in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is going to happen. This is our God. This is our God of love. This is our God of judgment. He hates sin. He judges sin and he will not stand for it amongst us or amongst the world. Every knee will bow. God will judge the false idols. God will judge those who stand against him and all will eventually acknowledge him as Lord. So tell me, can God take care of himself? Absolutely. Can he take care of you? Absolutely. And you know what the ultimate proof that God can take care of himself? Do you know what the ultimate proof is? Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. When Jesus died on the cross, the disciples thought it was all over. They took him down from the cross. They laid his body in the grave and they went back to their homes to grieve and to mourn. Jesus, the son of God, was dead and buried. The disciples' faith was shattered. But on the third day, he rose again. And this is a proven fact. It's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not something that we dragged up from history. It's a proven fact. He rose again on the third day. Death and the grave could not hold him. He had died on the cross and come back to victorious life over sin and death. This is the proof that God can take care of himself. God is God. He is Lord. He is Lord of all the earth. He is not served by human hands. He will judge the world with justice. He can take care of himself. And praise God, he takes care of me. He is sovereign in this 21st century. He will accomplish his purposes with or without our cooperation. We, will we obey him? and live, live a life according to the victory that he gives us? Or will we, like the Israelites, try to live on our own terms? See what it got them. See what it got the Philistines. He will not be overrun by the enemy. The enemy of this world cannot touch God. And the enemy of this world cannot touch you. God has a hedge around you. God protects you. God is the living God and he will look after you. He can take care of you. Even in your circumstances. Even in the dark days that you sometimes feel. And we all have them. God can take care of you. He knows what he's doing. He loves you. He'll take care of you. Hold on to that. 
in your dark times. Hold on to that when you're going through trials and circumstances. Hold on to that. Believe it. Don't deviate from it. Hang in there because God can take care of you. God bless you.